0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of MetaViews, where we talk about technology, power, and society. And today we're gonna talk about copy and paste public policy with one of our favorite and regular contributors, Vasiliki Bednar, who, you know, I have to, once again, Vass, give you full credit for the idea of this topic as it's something you've mentioned a bunch of times, and it's one of those self-evident things that you can ignore, and then once you're primed to it, you see it everywhere, and you kind of start realizing that it's become a kind of, in this case, de facto policy approach. So why don't we start with the kind of big picture? How would you define copy and paste public policy?
1: I would define copy and paste public policy as a policy process that starts with a jurisdictional scan and then just tries to pick pick and choose from there. So one that ignores maybe contextual realities, um, one that underappreciates the problem as it's whatever the policy problem is as it's presenting itself in Canada, right? So maybe over relies on definitions, data from elsewhere. Um, and then fundamentally, it's just our kind of hunger or thirst, our comfort replicating um, the policy progress of other jurisdictions. And, uh, you know, I, I crave originality and it makes you wonder who got trained as a policymaker to be the first mover, to be a provocateur, yeah. to put out the trial balloon. Yeah, um, yeah well, that was a it- long definition.
0: No, but I think it highlights sort of two dysfunctions that I feel come as a consequence of what you described. One is it ignores the process that went in, in theory, to those original policy ideas. That might have been consultations. That might have been stakeholder discussions. That might have been looking at, at various evidence and policy research. And if you just copy and paste... You know, if if the process is the purpose and you don't go through that process, maybe you don't understand why those policy suggestions are what they are. And secondly, I feel that the dysfunction that this reinforces is risk aversion, that rather than take a risk of doing the trial balloon, rather than taking the risk of being provocative, Instead, you're rewarding risk aversion by just sort of waiting and seeing, and you know doing what other people do, rather than trying to find a customized or a localized solution. Thoughts?
1: Well, the flip side to that is, you know, with a lot of these digital policy interventions, there's an argument that we should be um, moving in a more coordinated fa- fashion internationally. And that this, you know, a patchwork doesn't make sense for governing certain online activity because it's borderless. And I know you talk and think about this all the time, night and day, probably in your sleep as well. Um, But you're right, it it takes copy and paste policy. I used to use the phrase um, public policy by Google, actually, which is unfair to Google because I think some people would hear it as, oh, the company Google made that policy. But what I meant is just that, you know, that first step tends to be the search bar. And no disrespect to jurisdictional scans, they're always going to be part of you know, the policymakers' toolkit. But when it comes to emergent and disruptive technologies, it doesn't always help us. And we have to equip our decision makers to get ahead of uh, maybe some of these opportunities and, and be anticipatory and see harms on the horizon and also anticipate the structures we need to facilitate, like true innovation. Yeah. right? Yeah. Without having companies bang on our door and kind of complain or point out those deficiencies, um, kind of making that relationship more collaborative. So I don't know. Maybe I'm using key key phrases here and and not being articulate, but I no, agree I, with your point. Yeah, I,
0: I think what you've done actually is 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 both emphasize necessary constraints while acknowledging the real life pressures of policy development. But I think in the end, what you also teased out is the lack of capacity development. Like if you don't engage in policy brainstorming, if you're not engaging in saying, hey, what is a process that helps us come up with our own policy? Well, then you're, it's like atrophy. You're not going to have that ability. If all you do is copy and paste then you're never actually going to develop the skills necessary to do good policy because you're not exercising the range of methodologies that can be used to do that kind of public policy. But I think you did tease out a very important point, which is the coordination part, right? Mm -hmm. That in a globalized environment, in a technology driven environment It is kind of irresponsible to just go off and do your own thing and not pay attention to what all the other kids are doing in the schoolyard. And that kind of made me think of an analogy here, which is open source, right? On on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with open source policy. There's nothing wrong with everyone looking at everyone else's policy and getting a sense of what they're doing. But then I thought, well, how do we make it non-technical and I love comparing open source to cooking, that a recipe is open source, but the recipe ain't gonna feed you. Like you still (laughs) gotta make the meal. You still gotta take that recipe, put the ingredients in and adapt it to your dietary needs, adapt it to what's in your pantry. And maybe that's what we're describing here, that we like the jurisdictional scans. We like that people are looking at each other and coordinating, but we still want you to do your own homework. And put together the meal so that people are nourished and satisfied.
1: Maybe there, maybe I can extend or, or play with your analogy to sort of uh, talk about meal pl- prep <laughs> or yes. meal planning yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I kind of think by the time you're copying and pasting, it's kind of too late, right? Um, I think you and I have touched on this before. I've, I've written about it in, in Regs to Riches. Uh, cell-based meat. You know, we do not have a regulatory framework in Canada for cell-based meat, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, It cuts across a lot of ministries in really interesting ways, in ways we've come to expect and ways that it should. We have innovators. We have startups raising money, working directly with researchers in the very same way that we idealize. We will literally commercialize research. We -hmm. have these companies ready to go. Some of them have pivoted to make dog food, Plant, you know, where there's a differently regulated. Another company that was like way ahead of the curve, uh, New Harvest, moved to the US. Yeah. So instead of copying and pasting that framework, how do we create a, uh, an environment that also welcomes saying, hey, this isn't a problem yet, right? We problematize so much of policy because it's so solutions oriented um, that we rob ourselves of the ability to be more proactive. So mm-hmm. when when will Canada regulate cell-based meat? After everyone else does. And you know what, that sucks. it sucks because it means our Canadian companies are gonna have a harder time getting on shelves in grocery stores or going direct to consumers they're not going to have the brand name recognition it is going to hurt our economy but you know no one's losing sleep over this and that's fine you don't you know it's not as it's not comparatively as urgent as other policy again problems but how do we intervene before something's a problem
0: but maybe i, I don't know maybe maybe it is maybe it should be prioritized maybe the alarm should be raised a bit because what i heard in your analogy is not that those canadian companies will be lost in in the marketplace it's that they'll be lost as in they're not going to exist right that that the cost of of this kind of uh uh, regulatory lag or the cost of this inability to because the other you know just as a relevant tangent What I find brilliant about your newsletter is the core argument that if regulations are done right, they lead to riches. That if the government can work carefully with civil society and industry, everybody wins and it results in wealth generation for society as a whole. And that to me, while we might frame that as a nice thing, we can frame that as the, if we don't do it, we're we're doomed. Like if we don't do it, In this uh, uh, hype, in this inflationary global economy, the stakes are higher. If we don't keep up, we could really fall back. And that's where I think the larger argument here is one of how do we find that collaborative platform in which innovative research, innovative industry, civil society concern, and regulatory responsiveness create global competitive advantage. And I think that's where we're both arguing. It comes from policy capacity, it comes from smart public policy that doesn't wait for someone else to do it first, but figures out how it applies to our unique conditions to give us a unique advantage. Am I framing the kind of value proposition correctly?
1: Well, I love how you summarized the newsletter and that, you know, suggested it has some coherence behind it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was very kind. Thank you. No, and of course, yeah, regs to riches with the two. Um, I think we have to think of more people as policymakers and in the policy community. So policy has historically been very adversarial with the private sector. We tend to have this guarded, idea that anyone working for a company is bad. Uh, I think we're starting to shed some of that, especially through really productive groups like the Canadian Council of Canadian Innovators, Creating New Voices, maybe C- CFIB though, I feel like they rub people the wrong way. That's, I should have said that out loud, but like, you know, newer newer entities. The real people I'm interested in that I think should be brought a little more into the policy process are venture capitalists. Um, I'm interested in events like um, incubator events for really early companies policymakers should be learning from that Of course not all the companies will go forward but what's on the horizon where are we going what are people raising money on what are what are the new ideas and and that's part of being anticipatory and I think it would be really interesting to understand the dominant attitudes in the in the venture capital class to the state I think that the idea or my own, idea that I've absorbed um is that venture capitalists tend to be very anti-government anti-state um you know market-led which is still fine um but again that regulatory environment is the vehicle under which you're gonna have scaling and 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 continuity you interrupt me
0: well and if and when I have had the uh, either privilege or curse of working with said investors um not all of them have that libertarian ideology. You're right, most do, many do. Um, The ones who don't are very much on side with your worldview, 100%. And and, and this reflects, uh, for lack of a better word, I'll call the Israeli model Mm. of uh, venture capital investment, which is a very close coordination between academia, government, and private sector with the military underpinning it. But, you know, the the people I've worked with and met who came out of that or who are aware of that milieu are very much of the regs to riches kind of worldview and philosophy. But to the other clowns, I would say you're leaving money, you're losing money because you have an ideological blind spot, a bias that prevents you from seeing, you know, the power of regulatory authorities. And in America, it's more a hypocrisy because these guys do benefit from that regulatory power. You know, they, they just couch it into, into patriotism and other uh, jingoism. But I think the point of that coordination is essential. Now, I do want to move at some point this discussion to us talking about how do we overcome this? Yeah. Both sort of here in Canada in general. But uh, there's two questions I, w- I want to kind of look at first. You know, are there other countries and I mean this in the negative, not the positive. are there other countries that you've seen that also suffer from this kind of copy and paste mentality? I know this is true in the general sense because we certainly see it, but you know are there is Canada uh, you know a dunce sitting in the corner of the class or are they part of a cohort, a herd, shall we say, And it is that herd mentality that is normalizing a lot of this copy and paste uh, kind of behavior.
1: Well, Canada was designed to be innovative, right? If you look at our federalist structure, I think it's an argument for experimentation. The provinces and territories were supposed to be creeping each other and deciding, you know, should we replicate that? What can we learn, et cetera? You could argue that still sort of happens, but you could also argue that the business environment in each of the provinces is no longer sufficiently different to warrant, you know, these artificial boundaries. You could argue that um, many of our jobs are over-regulated, the provincially regulated ones, and we're hurting worker mobility in this this new, maybe work from anywhere a lot of the time age. Um, Is there a herd mentality? Maybe amongst the Commonwealth, um, people sometimes point that out, there's a huge benefit to someone else being a first mover, right? They take They get some of the accolades but they can also take a lot of the tomatoes canada can learn a lot it is just sort of my observation that we've by default come become a country that uh learns from others and and moves a lot more cautiously and maybe that's part of the dna of the country but it's 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 not written down anywhere um and i what i crave for the country is that we will intervene or put forward new regulatory regimes that other people write about, that other people point to and say, you know, this is what they did in Canada. And I know there's policy examples of those, but do not tell me that it's um, don't tell me it's the GIS and OAS top up from years ago or a public yeah. healthcare system, right? Like we yeah. gotta, we gotta get beyond that those. That's we did it. Congratulations. Yeah. What now? Yeah and and let
0: me push back uh relevantly on the it's in our dna line sure and 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 say what if a better frame is it's in our psychology yeah cuz if we say it's in our psychology it's less deterministic but it does acknowledge the kind of trauma right that leads people to not want to stick their neck out right cuz we we do i think deserve a moment before i get to my second question to mention the tangent of the tall poppy syndrome in Canada, Mm. right? That is very real, that we do have this kind of national culture in which if someone does stick their neck out, we do tend to want to push it down or mock it or make fun of it. And that does traumatize people. It does discourage people from taking risks, from floating trial balloons. And that's why I think that we have to acknowledge that part of our larger national psyche or our larger psychology so that we can counter it. So we can combat it so that, you know, we can start celebrating our champions, start celebrating our success story, and start sticking our necks out, especially when it comes to public policy. So my second question was, were the, so far, we've done this entirely in the context of governments and states. And obviously, that's relevant, because that's public policy, and that's high stakes. But it struck me when you introduced me to this idea of copy and paste policy that I've seen it in the corporate world my entire career. That, like, rarely do corporations invest in policy development. Rarely do they think that policy development is useful to their bottom line, to their functioning as a healthy organization. And so they copy and paste right? They look for best practices. They hire public speakers who come and just tell them what everyone else is doing. And then they just literally just put it into some folder and part of the website. Maybe it seeps into the corporate consciousness, but usually it was a good, it was a feel-good seminar at an event or a conference or whatever, and they go on. So I'm curious to hear your perspective, both as, you know, someone who has been in the private sector in a policy capacity, but also as the super smart observer that you are, to what extent is the copy and paste policy phenomena a plague in the private sector the way it can also be in the public sector?
1: Well, I mean, for small P public policy, corporate policy stuff, I think when it's uh, maybe related to more virtue signaling, we see more of a trend towards homogeneity and kind of similarity for better or for worse. Sometimes, you know, Uh, It's really only the people at a particular company that can hold their leadership to account. But when you think of some interesting, again, best practices said with 10 hundred (laughs) wings from maybe private tech companies that government could learn from, think about companies that host hackathons not just to create something new, but to say, attack our product. Where are the vulnerabilities? What are your ideas? It is in service of improving that. We don't do that in government, unless it's a political party kind of being like, submit your ideas, and we're all going to vote on them, which is fine. And sometimes I participate in that, and sometimes I don't. But we don't say to the to the civil service, what are we missing? What's flying under the radar? What's a policy file you wish we were working on, but we're not? And that could be so valuable, because it also changes, you know, you were talking about the syndrome in our psyche, um, the hierarchies. And the norms that characterize government can also inhibit that kind of innovation because it discourages um, bottom-up problem identification so, so aggressively. But when it comes to companies making policies, I mean, I am I optimistic ever? Some of the time, I'm optimistic that more, more companies are going to be investing in uh, coherent policies in order – I mean, beyond compliance, to, to explain why do we do what we do and when do we do it, mm-hmm. because it's becoming more of a norm through the largest tech companies. I just started reading um, that new Facebook book that came out yesterday, An Ugly Truth. And I mean, it's really a story about a company growing and lacking the consistent internal policy to deal with these huge thorny and new problems in a way that became very unsatisfying for citizens and consumers. So understanding what you do and why and when, you're right, that can be a policy too. It it might be captured in your your Q&A or your FAQ on a website, um, but it's still important. Um, You're creating a framework. You see more companies than I do under the hood. Probably, um, I do read annual reports and stuff, but oh, I gotta no. get a hobby. I gotta get a hobby.
0: Well, I, let's come back to that. That's an interesting point about hobbies. But I, I, what, what you, there's, there's, I'm having divergent thoughts, and I'm trying to hold on to both of them. So okay, I've taken a moment. I've got it. The first, the second reaction I had to you was Lawrence Lessig's code, right? And yeah. the way in which Lawrence Lessig kind of described how laws and policies are becoming like code. And you reminded me of that because the way that corporations have operating policies, innovation policies, right? And uh, there's a neglected or untapped resource in finding the best practices within your organization. And to come back to not copy and paste, but proper, you know, a, a, a literature scans and assessing the landscape, you can integrate those policies. You can allow your organization to be more prosperous and more successful. If you have the capacity to identify other policies, integrate those policies, and write a t- run a tighter ship, run a tighter business, and I'm 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 kind of flustered because I had not thought of that in the context of our discussion, but that strikes me as a huge value proposition as to why private sector organizations should be serious about policy, and I mean this both to our original regs to riches point about influencing public policy. But I also mean it internally of how they run themselves as a mini state, as like yeah. a micro state within the global economy. Um, but the other point I thought that you touched upon casually that I want to tease out all phrase as 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 the knowns, right? Yeah. That that the problem with policy development is you often just go to people who are known, right? And the C ten debacle here in Canada, right? The the attempt to upgrade the Broadcasting Act was a a classic clown show in this regard because while everyone was saying who the hell did you talk to about this terrible mess the government kept saying well we talked to you know the right people. people the knowns yes and and that is the cognitive bias of almost all public policy development that there there is a cast of regulars right and either that cast of regulars is unconscious and it's just the people you turn to Or it's very deliberate in terms of the stakeholders that you want to line up to kind of legitimize a bill or legitimize public policy. So I'm curious to hear you riff a little or unpack the consequence, the hidden consequence of copy and paste policy on this inclusivity issue and on the way in which we want public policy to be more participatory and, and, and allow new people to become knowns, to become experts how does this inhibit or impact that
1: well if you're going to copy and paste copy and paste right put out a report put out your pre-c10 report cite everyone all those academics that you were that you had those private conversations with and put it forward and stand behind it right there there can be good arguments for situations where you do copy and paste where the ideas exist you're not reinventing the wheel you're just kind of iterating on it i think a lot of people would be fine with that i think the anger in reaction to C-10 was the, that it was so guarded, that it wasn't transparent. If the government had said, yeah, we're plowing forward with this, we don't have a lot of time, here's the rationale, here's the citations, ah, there's going to be two, two forums, town halls you can come to, but like our minds kind of made up. Don't pretend, right? It's the pantomime of consultation that drives people absolutely insane. And again, people, want to put forward ideas and solutions. And sometimes people just want to help government do a better job describing that problem, which is also very valuable. Um, I'm being a bit pedantic. So, you know, describe describe that and kind of engagements with academics. Well, I think government hasn't Government hasn't gotten over the fact that long ago, it lost its monopoly on policy priority setting. Yeah. So We yeah. still like to pretend that, you know- and, and I'll go further, I'd say that they're still in denial. Yeah, okay, maybe they like, are. Maybe
0: some have come to terms, but I think most, they might refute what you've just asserted. I think, you know, without the, the evidence is overwhelmingly in support of your argument.
1: Well, if you look at the growth in government jobs over time, over the past 10 or 15 years, Um, the real growth of government has been in communications roles, which is also interesting and sometimes scary, I think. Um, So, yeah, I think there's this idea that, I mean, I think government is a thought follower, right? I think that's probably when government works best and what people expect. But when government pretends to be a thought leader, maybe as it did with C10, I think you could argue government acted as if only it understood the problem was solving to the point that literally every day I was like, I don't understand what problem this is solving. Like, why are we doing this? Um, Actually texting my friends, like, can you explain this to me? Like, I'm missing something (laughs) and it's just not on the internet anywhere. Um, And then how do we, yeah, how do we expand and get to more participatory policymaking? You know, not, I don't think we want hyper participatory policy making in every realm but i think that's where it's on government to sort of be like you know we're doing an expert panel for this because we just want to hear from these experts and then we're going to share everything they've kind of put out but we also try to do everything at once a lot of the time we're going to have an expert panel we're going to do this big public consultation anyone can run in write in or run in to the meeting we're going to summarize everything and it's like is that too much is that too much did it was more time taken or more more work done beyond what was ultimately needed to kind of get to that place where what we really need to consult people on are the potential solutions mm-hmm. yeah. um, versus the maybe again to use that problem side problem solution opportunity space maybe and then solution space. I think the solution space is where you want people to to react and stress test and kind of build support for. But no, in, interrupt me again. And then I, I can also touch on, you know, the kind of copy and paste policy I saw back in my day when I, when I worked at uh, Airbnb. And also part of me making fun of copy and paste policy is my own resentment of myself because I sometimes noticed I know I'm guilty I'm like oh man all I'm thinking about is how to translate this intervention that I like here to Canada I was like
0: yeah you're giving me too much to work with and I'll go in reverse order I think to your point there's a big difference between translation and transliteration yes and the distinction between that I think goes to our earlier comment about open source and transparency yeah and that's where you did tease out I think in here another interesting distinction we can make which is when you were talking about, well, if you're going to copy and paste, you know, be transparent, show how you did your work. And that brought up an earlier thought I had of when does copy and paste kind of become inappropriate appropriation, right? Like when you're Hmm. appropriating something without rewarding who made it. And you reminded me of it of like, you know, if you're taking some academics work, don't just take their work, bring the academic on the stage to explain what their methodology was and why they were doing it. And that then reminds me of the other thing that I think you touched upon that, you know, maybe we'll tease out in a bit, which is policy methodologies. Because you were like, yeah, you don't want to just do everything, right? You don't want to rely on the old school consultation, because sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And our friends at Mass LBP, they've been innovating all sorts of policy methodologies. And I've been observing, you know, other outfits. There's great groups in Barcelona, in Taipei, who are also engaging in similar types of technology-driven policy. So there's a huge menu of tools, tricks, methods that people could be using rather than copy and paste. And yet it strikes me that copy and paste, because of the appropriation issue only works if it is like multi-dimensional if you're not just going to google and copy and pasting but you're calling up the person who you're copying going hey how did you come up with this you know can we bring you up for a little workshop where you talk to us about what's going on like that to me is a more
1: ethical way to approach this thoughts i mean absolutely i love the sound of what you're describing for For an elected official to get behind a podium and be like, I love what that congresswoman in California put forward, and I keep thinking about it, and I've tasked the government with exploring how how many people could we help if we did something like that here, and I'm going to share the results with all of you, a lot of people would be like, that's so cool, because I also just read about that in the Atlantic, or saw something on BuzzFeed, and like, I'm comforted to know that we're exploring it here, because, again, we don't preview enough in government, we like to show people things at the end, it's like, Back to your back to your food menu. It's like, hey, dinner's ready. And people are like, fuck, I did not know we were doing dinner tonight. What time? Where is it? Oh my God. Like, I didn't know. And that's where you people start to get their backs up versus like, hey, we're planning we're planning this big dinner. It's coming up in three weeks. Uh, who's interested? Uh, I don't know if that's useful how we're talking about your 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 metaphor, no, I mean, your similarity there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because On the one hand there's expectations, which is the point about consultations, that on the one hand people expect consultations to be a little engineered, But if they actually participate in them, they expect to be listened to, right? They expect their feedback and their input to actually make it into the final sausage that comes out of the mix. So I I agree 100%. I think there's expectation management. I think certainly what we're learning in terms of indigenous reconciliation and indigenous natural resource policy development, it's got to be slow and the consultation you know, can't have an end, it can't have a goal, it has to happen. There's value to that, I think there's insights to that. You know, The same way that I keep talking about how there's ways in which technology can allow lots of people to have input and then analyze and organize and represent that input in a transparent way that allows people to feel that they're being taken seriously. I, I do wanna get more into the kind of how do we move past this, but I wanna hear more about your Airbnb experience you know, partly because I I think where I'm anticipating you going with this is Airbnb as a target of regulation was certainly subject to a lot of copy and paste. And yet, as an organization was quite willing to work with jurisdictions to customize and address their individual particular needs.
1: So the one Airbnb thing that came to mind immediately was just that, you know, there was this one time every year where the company would be like, does anyone have ideas for other companies we should look at and like potentially work with or also buy? Like it was a call out for like, what's cool that we could acquire? Which I always found intriguing. Anyone could fill out a form and you would get a scheduled 15-minute meeting and you would actually make the pitch that the company should look at it. Um, When it comes to policy, when I joined in 2017, Airbnb had just put out I think it was their first public policy toolkit. And I found it just so novel. I could not like stop staring at this PDF because I just thought, wow, this is a different approach. This is a big technology company that's getting bigger, that's disrupting things, doing something different and weird, but it's putting out ideas for places to consider. I could not believe it. I was just like, it would be so cool. And so fun to work there. And like, I could help places in Canada, like, Solve the regulatory gray zone and, you know, put in the guardrails that we everyone agrees we need of some sort. And with the copy and paste, I, I think what ended up hurting a lot of municipalities is we became so almost obsessed with regulatory regimes that had been initialized in other areas that it robbed us of our own creativity. So I would meet with, and I really hope this is not telling tales out of school, but, you know, I, w- I would meet with jurisdictions that were decidedly not urban and probably it was people renting out a secondary property they had less than half the year etc whatever and they would be like so we want to talk about san francisco i'm like okay i guess we can but like it doesn't really apply here they'd be like what's up new orleans we read about that i'm like okay you've googled public policy airbnb you've got a baseline i'm happy to talk about it but what about these other options to consider here? And it, it, it created a, a kind of narrowness almost, again, from those first movers. Um, but I guess from a capacity perspective, I thought that was actually the most painful part of working there. I think in reflection, you know, when people are dismissive or they're like, oh yeah, like you were a lobbyist. It's like, you know, I didn't have a script that I read from. I wasn't a robot kind of going around everywhere. It was still creative. It was still novel, I got to spend a lot of time with really smart policy people. The the most painful part was actually recognizing how ill-equipped certain jurisdictions were, to have the responsibility of regulating something like that. And it's like, well, I most of the time run parking here, but now they've thrown the entire sharing economy file at me. Okay, amazing, fun opportunity. But they don't have the policy infrastructure. They don't have the staffers they are lacking the data. And if anything, they're going to outsource the work to like a firm that fundamentally makes its money off capitalizing on the lack of resources instead of getting more resources for the province, et cetera, et cetera. So that's actually what made me the most uncomfortable in the work um, was seeing under the hood or behind the scenes, whatever the phrase is in that regard, and just being like, "If if this is our capacity to respond to this, behavior, which is historically not that new, just kind of manifesting in a different way, Yeah. then it just did not seem to bode well for other, and I'm not equating every tech regulation you know, thing as being the same, but I came of age as a policymaker when these companies were starting out. I started grad school in that infamous year, 2008. It was a recession. I Googled how to spell porrogation poruga- and what it was. And you know, Airbnb and Uber were being founded and et cetera, et cetera, and well, r- growing and, uh, as I was learning. So it's become interesting.
0: Well, but on the one hand, you're kind of evoking the the asymmetrical power relations that often exist between technology and regulators or technology and government. Yeah. But the other thing you did, which I feel bad that it's only at this part of the conversation that it even occurred to me, was the I municipal do? copy and paste. Right. When we started the conversation, all of my attention really was on I was thinking federal, I am thinking nation states. And then after them, I was thinking corporations and like it didn't it didn't even. But bam, of course, rural municipalities are the worst offenders of copy and paste policy. Right. Precisely, as you said, because they do not have the capacity and they have been devastated by this pandemic. Right. Because, you know, not only has it uh, uh, are these organizations that were not prepared for remote work, but the quote unquote labor shortage that is affecting the economy as a whole certainly affects rural municipalities because they don't got a lot of money to pay people. And in an inflationary period, people are looking for better paying jobs. And so the copy and paste phenomena in rural municipalities as well as small municipalities I mean, A, uh, the, you know, to your point, the tragedy that started to sink my heart is how pervasive I suspect it may be. And second, there is probably a predatory industry of consultants and companies who basically sell these guys the copy and paste, but they charge them a fee Mm -hmm. instead of them just use like, because these people do not even have the capacity to go to Google and copy and paste they're paying some guy $10,000 to copy and paste it for them. Yeah. Right? And do a search and replace on the municipality name so that they can put this stuff forward. And I see this in my own municipality and I see it now that I'm, you know, where I used to obsessively pay attention to urban municipal politics, I'm now obsessively paying attention to rural municipal and and I'm getting a little depressed now that I'm thinking about this conversation we've had about the impacts of copying public space policy, and thinking, you know, it really is a pandemic uh, when it comes to municipal policy development. And and it, you know, I've been meaning to bring her up the whole conversation. It makes me think about, you know, Bianca Wiley and her core argument that there's a capacity development that is not being that's being ignored. And the cost of that is is not just functional government; it's representative government in theory, and it, it's really huge. Again, I'm digressing, but I, I I feel that you hit the nose on the hit the you hit the nail on the head when it comes to really looking at how this is having a huge impact on the municipal level.
1: I like what you're pointing to because. I think we don't know what we miss when we take on copy and paste policy in that way with our in that thirst to import mm-hmm. um probably we obscure you know we tend to lack the robust research environment that uh, our neighbor like the us might have um and post pandemic we're going to want to understand mobility trends intention we're not really asking the right questions right we have these interesting data deficits but also consolidation trends. Like, you know, one of the many bees in my bonnet is around competition policy in Canada. And some of the time we just don't even have the numeric information that we truly need to have a real life conversation Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've got a ton of anxiety about the firms that we lost um, in the pandemic. I also have a lot of anxiety about how we push so many people to compete online, you know, go digital. That was great for a lot of companies it was time to also you know participate in e-commerce but we've pretended to people that e-commerce is a free and fair place to compete and what it really does is just force canadian firms to pay a lot of money to do online ads and lose money on shipping because of our expectations with one 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 click or fulfillment mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. that's for another conversation but. On copy and paste last Friday, President Joe Biden had this massive executive order on a pretty comprehensive vision for antitrust in the U.S. So what did I do on Sunday night? I absolutely sat right here my computer and started making a chart just of everything in that executive order. And then do I have the data or can I find it or can my friends find it to understand does this trend hold true here in Canada or kind of should we import this? And that's okay. It's copy and paste policy in a way. Um, But it's maybe honest in that regard of sort of saying like, hey, this is being floated. What could it mean for us? Instead of, uh, I don't know, me being an elected official and being like, surprise, here's like my cool ideas. And it's like, that's, this other person did it a year ago. And you're like, no one else has ever thought of this. Vote for me.
0: Well, and in the spirit of what we've been discussing today, You know, I would argue that credit for uh, that uh, executive order goes to Tim Wu, who happens to be a Canadian. So here it turns out that a Canadian is writing innovative policy for the U.S. government. And so it makes sense for us as Canadians to look at that and understand where that commonality comes from, recognizing that... A lot of America's understanding of media and technology comes from Canadian theorists as well. Just again, to show how we have all this intellectual capital that we are losing, because we do not have the capacity to leverage it. The themes of where I wanna go, just so yeah. that I remember it for myself. One is, and so this is all under the rubric of, okay, how do we move forward? Right. Both. I think what we have been deftly addressing is how can we adapt copy and paste approach so that it's more ethical, it's more effective, it's more acknowledging of its limitations, right? Like if you're going to do it, at least be honest about the, the cheat that you're using, the hack you're employing. But how do we do better? How do we move past? How do we create the capacity for innovative policy development? What are the pieces that are needed? And I I wanna frame this under two different contexts. And I wanna start with the academic, right? And, And this is partly the hat you wear with McMaster in terms of the public policy program. And so allow me to articulate this in an actual question. What role does academia have in addressing this problem and creating either the types of programs, the type of curricula, or the type of environments, initiatives, opportunities for this stuff to happen, given that rightly or wrongly, I argue wrongly, as a society, we turn to academia for research and policy. So what role do you think academia can and should play to address this problem that we've identified?
1: I think academics have a real strength when it comes to that problem definition opportunity, right? They can do great empirical work, descriptive work, they can import and amend the arguments of others. I think if we become over-reliant on the academic class to afford policy solutions, we start to lose a lot. So when we think about, you know, what does the academy owe the policy community? I mean, relevant, timely research maybe, but academic timelines are, are different than political ones for a lot of great reasons. Um, The work of translation is increasingly ambiguous in terms of where it happens. Is it the work of journalists independently? I've had many a time back in my think tank days and even now where I have to remind people, okay, just because you publish this literally groundbreaking report in the Canadian Journal of Economics doesn't mean the right people are going to read it. It doesn't mean the Minister of Finance is going to see it. It doesn't mean the Prime Minister is going to see it. It doesn't mean the Premier. And there can be a sense that that knowledge translation, which you pointed to earlier in that conversation, that it is an undesirable activity to take on, that it's kind of icky or it's, you know, there's too much self-promotion associated with it. Well, to my mind, it's just this huge question of who even builds that bridge, right? Is it is it university comms doing some kind of version of something? maybe. Um, but it's, it's very vague. So I I think universities could do a better job. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to frame it as lobbying by any means, Mm -hmm. but it's Mm -hmm. like, if we're going to, if they're this, if they're the neutral trusted place for ideas generation, then we need to do a better job kind of showcasing those ideas or those opportunities. And when it comes to training programs, I think the province of Ontario is pushing programs in unique ways that... You know challenge the the not integrity of the institution but challenge what we're used to with universities when it comes to tracking metrics of where people work and when and how much they're earning after they do a degree and the work integrated learning push i think has been productive to the point that people have an expectation now that um in an educational setting they'll also have a paid employment opportunity my mind is very mixed there i i I wonder what you know how you separate out the Academy's duty to, to facilitate that and kind of the individuals but then third I think this push for skills merging with post-secondary it's like actually really revolutionary for the ivory tower right um, that you have micro credentials or kind of be able to certify the, the more tangible skill that people are getting um, I think is exciting, but I'll I'll wrap up my ramble in a second, because I do want to say the practice of policymaking is being able to teach yourself something and ask the right questions in a very brief amount of time to build your own confidence as you get to that solution space. And there's no micro-credential on that kind of researching and learning skill to certify that someone has that appetite or that ability. And you kind of just have to do it by practice, right? And that's what I love about public policy. It's why I'm not a lawyer, because when you're a lawyer, I'm sorry, no disrespect to the lawyers who tune into MetaViews. You know, if you do real estate transactions, that's what you do for the rest of your life. You don't really make a career change and do um, labor law or mergers and acquisitions. You don't do, you, it just, I mean, I think it happens it's not done now and then
0: easily, and you don't get to do it fleetingly. If you do it, you do it once or twice in your career, and it yeah. comes with significant cost.
1: You said it, and like that always kind of, you know, freaked me out. Or past tense to freaked out, broke. That's what I think it should be. Um, whereas in public policy, you can you can build a career across all these different spaces and help be a part of interesting things in a range of sectors. So that's my big advertisement for. More policy people. If you're if you're creative and brave, you should be in public policy because you now, need to be brave and persistent.
0: You may take for granted the definition you gave there of you know what it what it means to be a, a policy person, but that was some tight shit. Like, put that on a t-shirt and sell it. Like that that okay. was an, an excellent kind of. <laughs> It would have to be small font, right? Cause it was yeah. a lot of words, but it'd be on the back, I guess. Yeah. Nonetheless, I thought that was excellent. And it made me think you're right. I have yet to see a university offer a micro certification for wisdom. That here you go, you took the three week course. You're a wise guy now, congratulations. But I also thought when you brought up that very important point, universities have all uh, their appetites have long ago been wet by the money they make from continuing education. And now they're in a position to really rake those bucks in. Uh, So I think you're right. We're going to see a huge explosion of that kind of informal learning. Now, I have my own answer for what I think uh, the uh, academia should do. But I'm not going to give it yet because I'm worried. Why? I'm worried it might taint your government answer. So I want to ask you the government question before I come back and give my academia answer, which is so what role does government play? Like from, uh, I mean this in the public sector, not literally like the government, but what role can and should the public sector play in pushing us past, uh, helping us break past this uh, this handicap of copy and paste policy so that we're much more uh, fully bodied when it comes to producing the kind of uh, well-rounded public policy we need?
1: I think... Leaders, like beyond managers, need to have lots of set times that they're accessible to everyone. The kind of all hands model of some like smaller tech spaces, I think, is would be really useful internally in government. What always freaks me out about the way people talk about their work in government is that it is given to them right? So that the worker is kind of, especially when you're more junior, you're just starting out. And ironically, you're like the hungriest you're ever going to be. you got the most time, the most flexibility, you want to prove yourself. And yet there's this like funnel of work that's allocated to you in particular ways. We really have to blow that up. In other work situations, we create the space for people to take on more, to pitch out, hey, I also think I could be doing this. Or, hey, is anyone working on this? Because I think we should do it. Oh yeah, Barbara's working on it. Can I work with Barbara? Like, I'm really interested in this it doesn't happen in government. Mm-hmm. And it starts to, I see it, I talk to a lot of young people in public policy, a lot of the time, and I see it disenchant them and start to turn them off. I see them misleveled, I see them ignored, and that's the ugly truth, you know, forget the new Facebook book, that's the ugly truth of this remote and distributed work situation. They can be much more easily forgotten. Yeah. They can have days, if not weeks go by, where they will say, I've been asking, but no one's giving me any work not only are you not getting work you don't have the mechanisms to obtain something in your portfolio to work on you can't even pitch out on your own project you're not even doing something that should that's extremely problematic let's do a jurisdictional scan on that and best practices so i i'm again making my answer too long too long for our t-shirt and uh our great Shopify store of cool things people said on MetaViews. But I think creating more space for project pitches, wild cards to come forward, new perspectives um, would create a much more exciting environment for for traditional policymakers. And there's a reason I did not, that I am not a civil servant. And I know the reason, and I'm not scared about saying it, which is that I would get fired, right? Like I could not... I would not perform properly. I would want to do too much and I would demand to be in certain meetings that I had no business being in. But and but, I'd get kicked out.
0: But let me push back a little as someone who wouldn't even make it in the front door. Like I would like you would at least get in. Yeah. You'd last for a bit, they'd throw you out. I wouldn't get in. So I, I agree with you, yeah. But I think where we have uh where we should be hedging our bets, where we should be leaving our opportunities open is if we come in at senior leadership, so no one can fire us, that's when it could work, right? I think that's the kind of scenario. But I think you touched upon something profound that you're right, we don't yet have t-shirt worthy, but I think if we could find it to get t-shirt worthy, I, I, and, and I don't wanna to give too much emphasis to this, but I really feel that you hit it on the nose, accessibility of senior leadership. Right, yeah. that if if you institutionalize and you could structure it, limit it in certain ways, but because you don't want to waste their time, I, I'm I, the senior leaders I've worked with in public sector, they suffer from terrible time scarcity. I get that. I'm empathetic to that. So I, I could see how you could structure this so it respected that, but you allow any person, especially any young person, to, to your Airbnb example, where they can put in the idea and they get their 15 minutes to give their pitch. A hundred percent, right? In all departments across all crown agencies, you mandate that. You mandate that senior leadership has to legitimately be accessible to their staff. I think that in and of itself would have a seismic shift in terms of how things are done. But when you were describing the alienation and, and the the demotivation, it reminded me of another idea I had, which you know the video game world is kind of influencing me, which is leveling up right? Mm -hmm. That if you made it easy for young members of the civil service to understand exactly how they could level up, like what the path is to GM or ADM or whatever, so that they knew how to play the game and you reward them, right? For solutions. You reward them for innovation. You reward them for like all the things of getting shit done. That makes it a little fairer. Right. That allows yes. them to to see the roadmap for their career, to be incentivized to stick their neck out because they know versus you're like, hey, if I stick my neck out, I'm getting kicked out. And I'm like, yeah, totally. Versus <clears throat> if you made rules, if you made policies that said, here, here's how you could do it and get through it, I think that also could dramatically change the culture.
1: Totally. Here's how we can do this better, here's how we can do this faster. Also, I know we're running out of time, but more actual regulatory sandboxes, I think people would be interested in more time. Time. Yeah. Time box doesn't have to be six months; can be three months. You know, novel engagements. Um, if anyone from government is watching, like I would totally go back to government in some sort of fun again time box capacity. I could run a great team on harms on the horizon and do a really great report for you in a short period of time that's useful, and maybe work with some really fun people and give them a great experience. Um, But I probably am not going to be on a particular track of policymaking on only one file because it just will not be intellectually satisfying to me because I'm not that person. So that's
0: a perfect example to come back to my academic example of what I think is going to move forward, which in a word is autonomy, Mm -hmm. right? Because if I think about what would or should be the heart of academic innovation, it's academic freedom. It's the original idea that as a researcher, once you've proven your capabilities, that you know how to research and that you're on track to do novel and interesting research, then there you go, kid. Go nuts. Right. And imagine if on the academic world that was true in a radically institutional way. So here's the scenario. I'll I'll (laughs) go back to Bianca. Right. Imagine (laughs) that a university says Hey, Bianca Wiley, we think you're doing really interesting work. We want to hire you to have a center, right? The uh, Democratic Policy Development Center, for lack of a better word. We're going to give you a salary. We're going to give you a budget. We're going to give you a spot on campus where you can tap into the campus network. And that's it. You don't got to teach. You don't got to do research. You don't got to do nothing. We're gonna advertise to everybody that we did this. We're gonna be like, look at us. We just gave Bianca all this stuff. Cause we're cool. Send your kid to us. So it's a huge capital, like intellectual capital, social, capital, like generator, but full autonomy, right? And so then Bianca can attract, and they even say, hey, and we'll give you some credits. You don't have to teach for these credits, but you can give these credits for students in exchange for work, mm-hmm. right? Then you got this free radical in the coop going nuts, doing all sorts of crazy things. So imagine that applied to government, right? PMO says vast. We got this terrible thing going on. We got challenges globally. We're going to give you this think tank that we're going to pay for, that we're going to outfit, but we have no control over, i.e. crown agency. You go nuts. You feed us stuff. We might ignore you, but nonetheless, you do what you got to do. Right, And that, to me, is how, through that autonomy, that's how you get leadership, that's how you get mobilization, that's how you get shit going on. We both know this is never going to happen. But, again, as we discuss this from a methodological perspective, it strikes me intellectually that that would be an effective strategy.
1: I mean, I think it would. Government still outsources a lot of uh, idea generation, but... I think the idea of that work happening directly in government or directly in academia, as you described for our mutual friend, Bianca, that's where, you know, it feels like a stretch, but it shouldn't. I also actually, I think Bianca should be teaching. I think she, she's great in the classroom and I'd love to see her teaching. At my work. point
0: is if you give someone like that a center yeah. and you don't ask them to teach classes, you're actually tricking them. Because they're going to be teaching 24-7. They're going to be so in love with their work that any fool who walks into their center is going to be learning. Versus this is the paradox. You tell someone, I want you to teach from X to X, they'll go, oh, man, I don't want to do it. And then maybe they do a shitty job of that hour, and then they're not teaching. Anyway, I'm I'm digressing. It's the paradox.
1: (laughs) Um. I hope our solution generation has been, has been useful. I think the key takeaway for anyone listening to this is to do exactly what you did with this episode, right? Get away from the, you know, problem description, don't obsess over it and start to bring ideas to the table and put them forward. That's the job of policymakers, not just pointing to problems and kind of looking at each other or talking about whose ministry is responsible. Um, Anyway. Yeah, that's
0: no, it for I, me. I, I think you know what was interesting about our conversation today is A, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I suspect people who are interested in this subject material are absolutely gonna get into it. And I'm okay that like here on Twitch this is not the usual content that someone on Twitch would encounter. Yes. Uh, a big shout out to my good friend, uh, real Sam Gemini, who has been with us this entire time. Uh, my uh, Austrian friend who I suspect is learning a lot about Canadian policy development, a subject he may not have previously been interested in. But this is the brilliance of our media environment is that for you and I to have this conversation, other than the time we set aside, it took no effort. So I I do not understand why we're not seeing similar policy brainstorming, similar virtual policy sandboxes flourishing across the land. So, you know, maybe at some point in the next few months, we should write a crazy pitch to the Privy Council office and say, you know what? You're doing it wrong. How about this? As just like a crazy, you know, of exactly what we described, but as like a virtual sessions as a prototype of trying to move this forward.
1: Let's do it. There might be a new government. It'll be a time of refreshing. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's our policy window of opportunity. There's yes. many cliches in policy, most of which are true. Keep your good ideas in a drawer. My prof used to say this. I was right sit down. I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I like grew up and I was like, oh my God, you've got to have your ideas ready to go in a drawer or else you never know when that opportunity will present itself.
0: Although yeah. allow me to be Canadian and say, let's call it a tickle trunk.
1: It should be a tickle trunk. did you use
0: tickle trunk on a previous, I think you might've used tickle trunk on a previous MetaViews episode. Probably. Uh, But your point about bringing up the election, as we conclude this episode, uh, I would love to have you back if and when we are saddled with an election uh, to do our best to introduce policy into the discourse around the election. Because I fear that policy is not going to be the mainstay of how this election plays out.
1: I'll I'll be around. I'd love to talk election stuff with you if the opportunity presents. Right okay.
0: on. Always a pleasure. Vasiliki Bednar, thank you very much. Uh, for those who don't know MetaViews, we talk about uh, technology, power, and society and regs to riches, which I think talks about a really broad uh, subject of stuff that uh, connects under regs to riches, but really looks at startups, technology, culture, economics, competition policy, a fantastic newsletter i encourage everyone to check out as well as a vast bee on twitter uh, a very good signal to noise and always interesting stuff on the general beat uh, but in particular the law companies as well i always appreciate being informed about all right everybody thanks again talk to you soon thank you bye